The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having, um, you know, ha- coming on because I know you're a very busy person and um <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Of course, honestly, any opportunity where I can talk about being Vietnamese or Vietnamese culture, I'm I'm there. Wonderful. Well, let's start with that. Let's start with the idea of um, being Vietnamese. What does Vietnam and being Vietnamese mean to you right now in your life? Uh, it is. It's. I mean, it's honestly everything. Um, partly because of wooden coffee supply, but really just my whole life, I've just like loved our culture, even when it was like hard to love our culture because I felt like a lot of people who weren't Vietnamese didn't really understand the Vietnamese American experience. Um, But like right now, right now being like 2021, I just feel like it's, you know, society is changing where there's more awareness, right? For like um, racial like dialogue. And, you know, I grew up in the nineties, I was born in like 86. So I grew up in the nineties and like back then race was a very, very dichotomous thing. Like Asians weren't even Asians, they were just Chinese, right? (laughs) But now there's like, you know, with 2021, with the internet, with meme culture, with all this radicalization happening through just internet and how people are able to kind of like have these nuanced conversations and discover, basically discover ethnic studies through the internet like I majored in ethnic studies but now you're able to learn so much through the internet and with each other we're able to have more like nuanced conversations so I all that to say I feel like like the understanding is growing and the appreciation is growing because there's understanding there's appreciation right we look at Vietnamese food and culture because there's appreciation there's like more opportunity for all of us to just be seen or just to be you know um so yeah I think it's you know it's everything to me being Vietnamese it's um you know leveraging my identity and my culture and centering like you know my Vietnamese American identity and experience and culture is has always been a big part of all my work from film and media to now to like entrepreneurship so I think it's just you know like obviously I love being Vietnamese and I love our culture (laughs) yeah 
it's incredible to have that um, mindset and that viewpoint that you have because you're really only born a few years after me and there's so much shame in my generation growing mm. up Vietnamese. And I hate to keep talking about this over and over and over again, but the differences are so profound, you know? Where, so did, you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Boston. Yeah, I was born and raised in Boston. So, and grew up through the whole like Boston public ed system. And then did you go to school in Boston? Did you come out like, you know, college come out? Yeah, with- so I actually, I went to school at UCLA because when I was in high school, I, you know, became politicized through a youth activist program mm-hmm. called the Coalition for Asian Pacific American Youth that was hosted on the campus of UMass Boston inside the Asian American Studies program. So I was very really, like politicized and like, you know, radicalized at a young age. And because of that, I had, I was like a thousand percent set on going to the UCs to major in Asian American studies because the UCs had the best Asian American studies program in the country. Ethnic studies started in San Francisco, right? So I was like a little radical, like firecracker. I was like, I want to major in Asian American studies and I want to go to UCLA. So I went to UCLA. I'm probably like one of the very few like freshmen who like applied into the major because normally people joke that like Asian American studies is like the major people take like it's like the easy major that they take later on when they when they're like forced to take like the intro ten whatever. Yeah. But I applied into the major and I was like, listen, I want to be an Asian American major so bad, like please accept me because actually I gotta tell you, Ken, I got rejected at first to UCLA. Um, I got rejected um, from UCLA and UC Berkeley and I got in through a letter of of appeal. I wrote a letter of appeal and I was like, I really want to come to UCLA and major in Asian American studies. And this is why, because I'm really passionate about my community and about activism. And I want to dedicate, you know, my undergrad and my career to like, like, uh, you know, uplifting the Asian American community. And then I got in through the appeal. (laughs) That's amazing story. I, um, I majored in anthro, which is a little bit more general than Asian American studies, but I'm sure it has similar roots. Yeah. I, I always um, am so scared because I'm not as informed as somebody who sort of like made education in that department so much of your, like you've made it a focus of your, your existence, right? How do you feel when you come across people who are kind of um, just in the dark and, and Neanderthalic, like I, I used to be that way. I, I admit, I, I used to be that way. How do you deal with people who don't know uh, much about this subject uh, in our community and, and outside of our community? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my initial answer is I don't deal because everyone is on their own journey, right? And in the journey of you know um, social justice, for me, there's no judgment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people are on their own journey of, of political consciousness, of political activism, of social change, and everyone contributes in their own way, right? And I think the the first, before you even like, you know, whether you're a grassroots organizer or you're a filmmaker that's dedicated to like activism, there's the internal work that needs to happen first before the external work, mm-hmm. right? And the internal work, that is a very personal journey and everyone is on their own journey on their own journey. I was very, very lucky where I was sparked and I discovered it at a young age because I had the opportunity to join this organization and I had mentors who like really, really mentored my my critical consciousness, right? Um, and then there are other people who didn't have that opportunity, who didn't have access to that, right? There are people who were in a city or a town that maybe didn't have um, ethnic studies on campus, right? Ethnic studies isn't offered in K through 12. So right. I think that's a bigger issue. Like everyone should have ethnic studies. So how do I deal? I don't, I'll admit when I was like in high school and like maybe like 
college, a little bit of college, I was super gassed up, right? I was like, I was that that activist who would judge you because I was like, oh, if you're you're not woke enough or like you're not down enough, right? I was I was super judgmental, right? But really, then you know, I I evolved and I realized that like that there is no room for judgment in the mm-hmm. path of progress, and you have to let people have their own journey, right? Whether they're there or not there or trying, um, everyone's on their own journey. And what I've noticed in like the really like political or radical like community or or both ends really whether you're like way in the left or way in the right when you like enforce your ideas on other people whether you're the left or the right or you project like where like your level of wokeness on other people that's actually not progress and that's not bringing yeah. us closer and that's not progressing us forward it's just creating more polarization yeah. right so um yeah I, I for sure when i was younger i was definitely judgmental right i was like whatever but really the path forward is you got to let people find their own journey and whether they're trying or not trying i i just try to embrace it with compassion and patience and and love and empathy to hope that we can inch forward closer together i love your response because i feel um scared about confronting you know family members or really close friends that are on the other ends of where i stand politically or it has been a polarizing last few years and to hear that response from you who's somebody who's been in the trenches from the early days i mean that reaching out and being compassionate and empathetic to our to our family members it's it's a huge thing it's very tough to navigate for me because i just don't i'm not informed as well informed i just don't know what to say sometimes but i know what the right thing inside of my heart is right i i just want to add though like i also part of what I choose to do is I, I determine when and when not to engage, right? Um, so say if it's with somebody who has a totally different political opinion from me, um, there are often times where I choose not to engage because I think about where I want to spend my energy, right? And my bandwidth, right? And how I want to contribute that energy. And if there's someone who I feel like if they're not trying to do the work, right? If they're just looking for an argument, if they're just looking to hear themselves out, I may not engage in a situation, right? Or if I feel like if it's with someone that I feel like is actually trying to do the work and trying to understand, then I would engage, right? But I think just like knowing for me, like knowing like having boundaries and knowing like when and when not to engage is important because ultimately it's like, what is the ROI on this engagement, right? Um, am I gonna, are we gonna actually get somewhere from this, right? Always arguing to hear the talk, right? Um, and so, so yeah, and cause also I've, I've also determined for myself that like, I'm not here to change people's minds, right? I'm here to help people understand. And that has to come that means that they need to come with a level of intent and willingness, right? So I'm not here to change people's minds. I'm here to help people understand, help us grow. Um, but they have to be willing to engage in that way. You know what's uh, intense for me um, about everybody I've ever you know met and uh, interviewed. I'm going to segue here a little bit. Is that you are, are are known in the world right now for for coffee, but like you take a like nine steps back or five steps back with somebody like you it's like massive <laughs> general sort of knowledge about so many different things and i'm i'm gonna get into that in the next you know it's some i'm gonna get into it right now but it's just it's always mind-blowing to me like I, i'll sit down with somebody who makes fish sauce or coffee but then beyond like well, as we get into this it's like people are just so much more than 
just the brand that they are representing currently, you know, mm-hmm. and this whole idea of like changing and kind of evolving and becoming more than where we are the, the year before. It's amazing. I, I want to hear, okay, now, so you go to UCLA, you uh, do the, the you do your school and what, what is your kind of like your direction in life at, at that point? Yeah. So when I was an undergrad, I mean, throughout my whole life, I've always been a very creative person, right? Whether I loved the arts, I loved arts and crafts, I loved um, creative writing. But during my undergrad years, um, I was a really active um, writer and spoken word poet, right? I spoken word poetry and performing was, was such a huge channel for me to find my voice. And so I was performing a lot in undergrad. And so when I graduated, I wanted a career as an artist, right? And as a, as a creative writer, as a performer. So I did that like for like a big chunk of my time, but I also worked full time. Uh, right out of school, I worked at a youth arts organization in Boston called Artists for Humanity, where I ran a literacy program and I also um, helped mentor students in the video production studio. So we wow. taught video production skills. Um, that was actually my first foray into film. And then after that, I was actually recruited to go back to UCLA to run a writing program in the community programs office there called the Writing Success Program. So I was the program director and I worked with students to help them help them develop their critical thinking skills and voice through the writing process. Right. So that was those were like my nine to fives. But really, like from five to nine, I was like always hustling my creative career, which was I was touring to different college campuses. I was performing. I was speaking. I was working on my chapbook. I was working on like, you know, my 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 creative projects and then after three years after three full years of working in this nine-to-five structure I was like I I I just I was felt I felt so hungry for a creative career but really I the nine-to-five structure didn't really suit me so then I quit my job at UCLA in 2012 and then I moved to New York City in 2013 and that and since then I've just started like my my independent freelance career in film so once I moved to New York I started making documentaries just on my own put it on YouTube and then that led to make me making documentaries for like NBC and then I started working with all the media companies in New York City including Vice and Mike and HuffPost and you know that was really like the my foray into media and journalism and documentary filmmaking um, throughout my years from 2013 and on in New York City. And then, of course, sprinkling sprinkling in a little bit of entrepreneurship and business as well. It sounds like, uh, God, you said something that that I I never have heard before, but you're five to nine, right? (laughs) And that's a cool concept because it's like, okay, we're all like grinding nine to five, but then it's like five to nine, you're like really off doing what matters. Mm-hmm. How do you what do you tell young people that um, just want to get to New York and and start something like that's terrifying to. Yeah. To yeah. Um, the first thing I always tell people is one, know your why. Right? Like really understand why are you trying to do this? Why are you trying to start this business? Why are you trying to move to New York, right? Because when you jump into an unknown situation, which happens a lot when you're making a big move or starting business, you need your why to be your compass, right? To guide you through those unknown situations. So that's the first most important thing I would always advise people. And knowing your why requires doing the internal work of knowing who you are right? Knowing who you are, what your values are, what you believe in, what you care about. Mm -hmm. And again, that's going to be your compass through everything you do. Okay. So now more, the more like um, tactical or pragmatic piece is one, I'd say, figure out your financial situation, right? Like, 
for me, it was about saving up and like stacking a shit ton of money as much as I could, right? And then having a runway or a financial cushion or a little bit of cash for me to transition into New York, right? So saving is something that I would always recommend for people. And, and saving is, is, for me, it's great because it allowed me some freedom to figure things out outside of a structure. It allowed me to invest in my first business here in New York City. It allowed me to invest in one coffee supply, right? So being financially responsible is something that we don't talk enough about. However, it's important and it happens in the background and it happened in the background for me, right? So whether that's like coming to New York with the contract in hand or saving up some money and giving yourself some runway, you know, I think being financially responsible um, is something that I would definitely advise people to do. Okay. What was your first hustle in New York? What was my first hustle in New York? Oh my gosh, I had so many. I think I was like, I was like a tutor, right? I like would um, tutor people in writing their college essays to get into college because my previous job was the program director at, um, at for this writing program at UCLA. I hustled that and then I would do, um, I would do, yeah, lots of writing, tutoring. Um, I would try to get gigs here and there just doing like writing for articles and then like trying to work on film sets and then eventually I made it on YouTube um what else that was really it just small gigs and then eventually I got like my first contract you know to do like a documentary series got it got it and then what were you aiming for when you were producing these small pieces um for your for yourself Mm. So I remember coming to New York and um, I was like, I really want to work in media and film and journalism, right? And I applied to all these jobs and I wouldn't get hired at any of them. I, I wouldn't even really get to an interview, right? Because I just had no experience on my paper, right? Mm. I had a youth arts organization and I had um, student affairs at UCLA, right? Um, and so I wasn't getting any, you know, luck in that era. So I just started making my own documentaries to be like okay well let me just try to show people like what my vision is and what I want to do and so my first YouTube series was called self-starters which was about creative entrepreneurs in New York City um, and for that I just really I really wanted to show more diversity in media right I wanted to show like folks of color through the lens of innovation and creativity and hustle because they were all business owners right they were all creative entrepreneurs and I really wanted to show um you know how dynamic and brilliant um our communities could be um so that's what I want to show really just like you know a different portrayal of folks of color in the framework of creativity and innovation you know, when I think back as a young person and even just imagining myself as a young person right now, like having to go to New York and going, okay, well, I have a camera. I've, I know to edit. I'd be terrified again of saying, okay, let me go out and make these documentary self-starter. Let me go in this direction. But how do you know that it'll work? I mean, how do you, what do you go think? Okay, let me, I have, I have these metrics. And then if it hits this, or you just go out and you make it based on the fact that you have this sort of feeling and just see where it goes. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was working on Self Starters, my YouTube doc series, I, I had no idea if it was going to work, right? I also had no metrics, right, for what I would consider to be successful, right? Um, and so that I wouldn't necessarily advise for people, but that was just my path. And I'm just, I'm just kind of like a fluid person like that. Yeah. Um, but for me, what was more important was that, you know, I want to create something that 
I, that I wanted. And I wanted to, to create something that I wanted to see in the world. I felt like these stories weren't really getting told, you know? Um, and so I guess that was like my why, right? And like, and you know, I never made money from that docuseries, right? It, it did help in like becoming a body of work that could show people about like, this is what represents me. Um, but yeah, for me, it was a feeling, you yeah. know? Um, I'm a, that, that works for me. I don't think it works for everyone. I'm a very intuitive person. Uh, it was a feeling. And um, I think I just kind of got lucky with that feeling. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of us who want to start things are scared. And we're, you know, just unsure. And then we have analysis paralysis. We analyze the shit out of everything and we don't start. And, but for somebody like you, who's just like from the gut. You just go in, have this feeling, and you do it. And then well, however it turns out, it turns out. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's sort of like this, uh, almost like a prerequisite for gamblers that, uh, you know, go out to become entrepreneurs in the future, right? Like yeah, I think, I think that feeling is important. I think you describe like analysis paralysis, right? And like, I personally feel like, because I, I often hear that too from people around you or people who like reach out to me for advice, like, how do I start? Like, I don't, what, what if, what if, what if? And I always say just start, you know, because it's not about having the entire blueprint or the roadmap because that, you know, one has the entire blueprint or roadmap to your life, right? But for me, it's about putting one foot in front of the other. And are you inching closer towards your goals, right? So for me, if my goal was to get paid doing film, does creating a documentary series get me closer to my goals? I would say yes, because it puts me in the body and the framework of a filmmaker, right? And it's also about like just taking that one step to also train yourself and like build that that muscle, that courage muscle, right? I think, which I think is really important, right? Um, you have to build courage as a muscle. The more you like flex it and the more you take those mini, mini, those small risks, which lead to bigger risks, um, the more courageous you come, right? So I think like just like doing it, whether there's a good plan or not a good plan, whether you have great KPIs or not great KPIs, I think there's so much value and power to practicing your courage muscle and just like inching forward towards your goal. Even if it doesn't get you directly to your final destination, it's going to get you closer, right? If not externally, then definitely internally. Yeah, our friend Bao Win always says, you know, in the early days, I'm 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 a scared guy. I'm always afraid to start. You know, uh, always said to me, don't let. Uh, and he's quoted uh, probably this came from uh, Barack Obama, then Voltaire. I mean, we we've talked about this a lot. Don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Mm. Uh, you exemplify that. You embody that philosophy, big time. Um, <laughs> what your Instagram handle uh, is one ounce gold right yeah <laughs> um, tell me about that well before i even get to that because that uh goes back to uh, another question i was gonna ask is uh you have all these traits but did you get it from your parents did they kind of like push you or the lack of their were they nine to fivers that made you go okay i'm not living like that or were they five to niners and you're like i'm living like right. that right I mean, isn't that the question of like nature versus nurture? Absolutely. <laughs> um, to my Instagram handle, did I already tell you this story? Nope. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I I love talking about the story. Thank you for asking. No one's ever actually asked me this question of what does my Instagram handle mean? So my Instagram handle is one ounce gold, O-N-E-O-U-N-C-E-G-O-L-D. And um, it comes from the Vietnam War. Um, you know, during the Vietnam War, after the Vietnam War ended, when all the refugees were trying to escape, the fare to get onto the boat was one ounce of gold. 
right? Um, and there are variations for some people might be two ounces or whatever. But um, I, when I heard that story, I just thought it was incredible, you know? And so for me, like that one ounce of gold represents so much. It represents freedom. It represents courage. It, it represents, you know, this desire for a better life and opportunity. It was literally the access and the passageway to getting onto that boat, which then led to the Vietnamese diaspora, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what one ounce gold means. <laughs> you know, it it goes to that whole thing about saving money too, because um, my mom's from the south. She's uh, from the, in '54. She migrated, but her family's from I'm uh, sorry, from the north. And this whole idea of one ounce gold and gold on your body when you're traveling or when you are in, uh, I think they call it chayaka, when you're running in the war. They they stacked these gold pieces. I mean, they were even known. My mom and 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 dad told me about stories about people cutting open their calves and wow. putting gold into there because it doesn't infect mm. and put it in there. And it's so Vietnamese. If you think about it, like one of the things that are so Vietnamese is like this idea of bringing gold with you and stashing it, and that's part of our sort of our legend. So when I saw that one ounce gold, I was like, I got to ask you about that. Wait, did you know what it meant? <laughs> No, I, I I was like, whoa, what does that mean? But you know, I I didn't I don't I don't like to kind of put some bias in my mind. I just wanted to be yeah. like, oh, interesting thing. Why not like a thousand? Why not a million ounces of gold? Why is it one ounce gold? You know, right. mm -hmm. and that's pretty cool. It's like, well, that's the ticket to the future. Yes, right. Yeah. Exactly. It opens up everything. Now, going back to your um, mom and dad. Yeah, um, we're trying. Sorry, we're on, we're on East Coast here. The sun's going down. Um, um, yeah. Okay. To your question earlier about like where did I get my traits from, is it nature versus nurture? You know, um, I I definitely think a lot of it is nature. I think so much of it is from my parents, right? Like my parents. And I'm sure like lots of Vietnamese people feel this way about their parents. So my parents are fucking hustlers. Mm. They work so hard, you know, like, and I watched them work hard my entire life because they were refugees. They were immigrants, right? We didn't have much growing up. Um, and I just, you know, I, so I think just watching them work so hard, I just naturally learned it. And I think a lot of it's in their DNA and my DNA. Um, and both my parents are actually entrepreneurs too. So um, they're business owners, they're small business owners. My mom has a laundromat mm -hmm. and my dad has a floor staining business. Um, but, you know, ever since I was really young, once they were able to save up, they, they started their own businesses, right? And so... I think it's watching that happen. Um, I think also became a part of me. I think with the idea of just like creating something of your mm -hmm. own, right? And like the idea of like having more control over your free of your life, um, I think has always stuck with me. And then of course, I'm sure a little, a little bit of nurture from the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, it does affect us. You know, my parents are both entrepreneurs as well, but you know, they failed a lot, and I watched that happen too. And sometimes you can't avoid it. Like I, there's things I'm like, Oh my God, I just repeated my parents' mistakes. <laughs> you know? it's like, yeah. 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 Sometimes. Yeah. So you go into this whole film journey and then what made you kind of leave it or did you continue it? Or are you still in it? What's the, um, yeah. Um, there is actually, there was a really clear like fork in the road for me. Yeah. Um, when I had this conversation with myself of like, do I invest more in my film career? Or do I invest more in Win Coffee Supply? Um, and it was 
2019, like summer 2019. And I was getting so much traction in both, right? Like after working since 2013 to 2019, my film career, I was getting inbounds to work on film projects, right? I finally had people reaching out to me to work on film projects or to reach out to me and say, hey, if you apply for this grant, like I'll definitely give it to you, right? It was, it was just like, felt so good. You know, anyone who's like a filmmaker or an artist, like you know how hard it is, right? Um, but at the same time, I was also getting a lot of growth with when coffee supply and the business was, was becoming very demanding, right? And as someone who has always been such a multi hyphenated, multi dimensional person who juggled so many different hustles at a time, I could actually feel my bandwidth getting to a point where it's like, I can't do both really well. I just, I just can't anymore, right? Um, and so I was like, which one do I choose, right? And I had to ask myself a few questions. I asked myself, like, you know, what do you love to do and how do you want to contribute to the world, right? And I love to do both and I could contribute in powerful ways, in different ways with both. And then the other, so that was the internal question. And then the other question was external, right? It was like, well, what are the signals I'm getting from the world, right? And, um, you know, which path could, which path would allow me to make a greater impact in the world? Right. And with that question, it was like, oh, it's the coffee business. Right. Um, because while I was getting more inbounds with my film career, it still wasn't enough for me to be where I wanted financially. Right. Or, you know, it didn't give me enough security or stability where I in a way that I felt like the coffee company could. Right. And on top of like the signals I was getting from the world and the amount of impact I feel like I could make. Right. And I felt like so with all of that, I was like, OK. I'm gonna to commit to the coffee company um, because it seems like there's a lot of energy around this, right? Um, so yeah, so you know, I I like it was like a really sad time for me. It was a really hard time because you know I like cried over this. I feel like I had to like really like kind of like like let a small part of me go, not forever, just for now, because, you know, my career, my identity as a filmmaker, as an artist, as a storyteller is much longer than my identity as a coffee entrepreneur, you know? And I felt like I worked so hard in this creative career. And there are times where I felt like, oh, I just didn't make it. I didn't make it right. Like yeah. fast enough in order for me to, cause if I didn't make it, I wouldn't be exploring any other pathways. Right. Um, so that's how I decided to kind of like really put all of my energy into one coffee supply. Um, however, for a fact, my storytelling career isn't over. Like the yeah. future definitely has books and films and, you know, more multimedia projects to continue telling out our whole story. I could see it in your um, in the commercials, the small snippets of the ads that you do. I could see the sort of the professional storytelling side come out. I could see <laughs> the level of like engagement that you have, the thought that you put into it. And it's yeah. it's weird because you know a lot of entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, when we start out, we don't think that you know you have like nine fires going, and you don't really think that some. You really don't think and and something's going to take off. And at one point, maybe five years, 10 years down the line, something is going, two things are going to take off and it happened to you, right? <laughs> Fork in the road. But what, we, what, what happens is all of the things that we started and all of the skill sets that we acquired really gets focused into that one thing that we decide to do. Yes, yes. Hence, like as you were mentioned earlier, um, 
because of my experience in storytelling and film and video production, I was, you know, I've been able to create all the content myself. You know what I mean? Um, Even from the design perspective, I'm fluent in Photoshop and the, you know, Adobe suite. And so, you know, you know, design and branding is one of the most expensive things you could do, you know, that for a brand. And so I was able to design everything myself from the packaging to the merch and all this stuff. So yeah, definitely all the skills that I had acquired over the years came through for, for when coffee. Yeah, that's huge. When was the first time you went back or went to Vietnam? Cause you didn't go back. You were born here, right? I was born here. Um, my parents brought me back. The first thing they brought me back, I was really young. I think I was like three or four years oh, old. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Three or four years old. And which was such a different time back then. So that was like, I want to say like 80, 89 or 90. Right. Um, and then I would go back pretty often with my parents. Well, what are they going so, back in 89, 94? That's like super, super early. Yeah, I was born in 86. I went back in like, my parents came here in 1980. It's super early. I, w- I went back when I was a baby. That is super early. I don't even think there were relations, like official relations yet at that time. No, they weren't. Yeah, and they still weren't, they still weren't part of the WTO. Yeah. Wow. And they were just going back and forth to visit family or did they have business? To visit family. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you go back three or four years old. And then when do you start realizing, wait a minute, I have another, there's another part of me in another place i think the first time i went back oh really okay yeah because um my parents are both one of like seven eight siblings and they're both the only ones to leave the country so all of my extended family is there like all my aunts uncles and all my cousins so every time i go back it's like family and it's, I'm just surrounded by so many people I don't know and then like all my parents friends I don't know you know um so yeah I, I think as soon as the first time I realized that like I had family and the whole life yeah connected. and, and so, what were the frequency of you going back yeah when I was younger I think I think up until high school it was like every two two or three years yeah and then high school you started going back more often or less um, I would say less because of college. Then I probably like didn't go th- throughout undergrad. And then after undergrad, I went back a lot. After undergrad. Okay. Like every, every year or every two years. Mm-hmm. And tell me, did you start seeing opportunity as you started going back seriously? Like in your mind, you're like, oh, wait, I could do that. I could do that. Or what, what was that? What was that, that kind of like that evolution for you? Mm. I remember thinking like, I think maybe like post undergrad when I would go back. Um, I remember thinking like, like how badly I wanted to move to Vietnam, because I felt like I saw opportunity in Vietnam. You know, um, for me being like you know a Viet U or like an English speaking, born and raised Vietnamese person with a lot of family in Vietnam. And I just felt, and especially when I would go to like Saigon, right? I just felt like, even right now, Saigon, I think is like the coolest city in the world, right? There's such a dynamic energy where everyone is very free and exploratory and divergent, right? Whereas here is very convergent. Like everyone wants to be a standard or a certain way um, in all the industries. And I I remember feeling like there was opportunity in Vietnam. Um, but I never, I never made it there. I never got to live over there. But the opportunity for like when coffee supply actually came to my mind in New York in 2016, because I was seeing like Vietnamese food and culture was having a moment, you know, in America, it was like, 
is like mainstream America finally like discovered Vietnamese food. Um, and so I started seeing a trend and I was like, oh, then like Vietnamese coffee was also kind of trending, but there was actually no real Vietnamese coffee product in the market. And so that's when I was like, oh, then I think there's an opportunity here because there's a growing awareness, but really not a good product. Yeah. There's a, you go, you go to all these uh, hipster um, coffee shops and it says Vietnamese coffee. And I'm like, no, nah, nah. <laughs> where are those beans from? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not even that technical like you, obviously, but I'm like, nah, that's just some, like, maybe some Folger shit. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are those little, uh, those little packs that are like, you know, you put in the machine and you. Uh, oh, the Keurig. Keurig. Yeah. They're like some Keurig shit with some condensed milk, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you start seeing Vietnamese uh, 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 an insurgent of a rise in Vietnamese food, and it becomes sort of like a, a big thing that arrives in New York in the scene, food scene. Mm. Yeah. How do you yeah. make that sort of like that jump? Um. So I the, I started brewing on the idea in 2016, and I I went to visit. 2016 was actually the first time I went to visit my current producing partner in the lot. Right. Um, I was visiting. I was actually on the way to Cambodia to film my documentary for NBC. Oh, wow. And then I was just like, oh, let me go visit my family in Vietnam before I go to hop over to Cambodia. And, and when I was in Vietnam, I was like talking to all my aunts and uncles like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about like starting this Vietnamese coffee company. Like, do you know anyone who has a farm who I can connect with? And my aunt was like, oh, I know someone. He's like one of my really good friends. I'm like, oh, great. So then like me and my aunt and my uncle, we, we fly from Hanoi to Da Lat. And that was like the very first time we had established like that relationship, but nothing really happened for about like a year. Right. I, I was kind of like just really busy with film and like my other business here. And so it kind of fell on the back burner. And then it wasn't until like late 2017 when I was like, okay, I think it's time that I fully commit to making this business happen. And so like, I was like, again, like ramping up and like ramping up emotionally and mentally. And then by the top of 2018, I was like, okay, I'm going to build it this year. And so I committed to building it on all of 2018. And then we launched it in November. Of 2018. Of 2018. What kind of historical data uh, uh, points did you understand in terms of like doing business on a personal level in Vietnam, because you hear horror stories all the time. Oh, you're going to lose, you're going to lose all your money. What kind of data points and, and anecdotal sort of references did you have before starting in 2016? Hmm. Um, really no data points, right? I mean, I'm like a feelings person, right? Um, <laughs> um, probably heard a few of those anecdotes, you know? Um, however, I will say that I feel pretty lucky that I have a huge family network in Vietnam, yeah. you know, and if I didn't have a family network in Vietnam, I don't think I would be where I am. Right. Um, my family supports me heavily, you know, in building this business. I mean, they have supported me, whether it's my parents who are just like my champions or like my network in Vietnam, my family in Vietnam. If I, if I, I asked my aunt, Hey, no, yeah, I do. She flew with me, you know, my aunt and my uncle, and they're not married, married. They're like in-laws, right? They like, they flew with me to the lot from Hanoi just to help me make this happen, right? And like, our family's really close like that, you know? Like our family's always there for each other. Um, and it's because like my current producing partner has a relationship with my aunt that we're able to do this, right? If I had cold emailed him or reached out to him on Facebook, like he doesn't know who I am. Like he doesn't, there's no trust. So I think the family element does bring in a level of trust that makes it, um, you know, 
opportune for me to do business, right? And even now, as I'm looking for new, you know, um, you know, producers or like new suppliers or anything, I always check in with my 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 family in Vietnam. I'll check in with my aunts or my cousins who are now who are like all in their 20s, 30s, and 40s now. Um, and they always have my back. You know, they're like, I don't know someone, but let me ask around or like you know, little things like if I need, if I need someone to go check on a supplier or a producer, like they'll go there and check on the product for me. You know what I mean? So having family, and I think being Vietnamese helps, being Viet Gu helps, knowing the language helps. And then having like family in Vietnam to either represent me when I'm not there or to come with me if I am there, it helps a lot. Yeah. So you have this idea of um, a coffee business but did you have it spelled out like i'm gonna create a brand and then bring in the beans or like how did you kind of formulate the business model yeah great question so i didn't have it spelled out um <laughs> i'm a feelings person remember ken um i was like okay this is the thought process you know always <laughs> with that process yeah so I remember I was debating like, okay, do I want to roast the product over there and then just ship it over? Cause I know that's available, right? With our partnerships in Vietnam, or do I want to like import the greens here and roast it here, right? I had decided to import the greens here and roast it here because I really wanted to provide um, and offer a fresh roasted coffee bean, right? A fresh roasted Vietnamese coffee bean, which no one was doing at the time, right? None of these major specialty coffee companies, whether or none of these um, smaller micro roasters or small batch roasters, none of them were fresh roasting a single origin Vietnamese coffee bean, literally, right? Um, and so, and, and part of my mission is to elevate Vietnamese coffee, right? And to show people that Vietnamese coffee isn't just cheap instant coffee. It's, it's actually, there is, I mean, that's one like pocket of production, like in many countries. I'm sure there's commercial instant coffee being produced in many countries, um, you know, around the world, right? Um, but Vietnam can also produce quality coffee. And so for that, I was like, it needs to be fresh roasted, right? Mm -hmm. It needs to be small batch roasted. It needs to be craft roasted, right? Um, because I wanted to help change the perception that Vietnamese coffee is only cheap. Right. So because of that, and also it was a way for me to be a little bit more, a little bit more aligned with the specialty and craft community here, which is locally roasted and fresh roasted. So because of that, it was how I determined I decided to start importing green beans rather than roast and package and then import over. Got it. Got it. That's a lot, lot of information to unpack for me. <laughs> I just want to get into the whole process of you know, the distinctions. Of yeah, well, because I would say that it's it would have been much easier and it's still very easy today for people who wanted to import, who wanted to just like roast and package Vietnamese coffee beans in Vietnam and then import it to Viet, import it to the U.S., right, and sell it in the U.S. Like, that's very easy to do, right? Um, you just pay for it to get roasted and packaged in Vietnam and then import it here. Um, and it's, nothing's wrong with that. It's just a different type of product. Like, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is all these massive conglomerates like Highland and, and Jung Wing, right? Mm -hmm. You're, are they bringing in stuff? They're competing with you? Like, you, do you think about these things? Or you're just like, fuck it, I'm just going to do my brand. And, you know, people buy the way I, you know, the way I think of it and the way I brand it, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think about them too much um, because... I feel like one, there's enough for everyone, yeah. right? There are, there are enough buyers in the world and coffee drinks in the world, I think, to support everyone's businesses. 
And two, our product is actually very, very different from Zhongwing and Highlands, right? Um, for starters, their product is very different. Their, their product is um, known and transparent on their packaging to include artificial flavors, ingredients, additives, right? Um, they're not like, they don't market themselves as a fresh roasted craft specialty coffee brand, right? Um, they're pre-roasted, pre-ground, mixed with other flavors and fillers, and who and then who knows yeah. how long it's in there. So they're just a different segment of the market that serves a different audience, and that's fine. Um, the other thing is they have no cultural presence in the U.S. market, right? They don't know how to speak to a U.S. audience, right? Um, whether it's their branding or their their messaging or their brand positioning, like or the, even like you know their their style designs, like. It's, it's not enough in the U.S. to have a good product. As you know, branding is everything, right? And not just branding, but U.S. consumers today are just so smart and they demand so much more from, from, the, from brands that they support. The people, and what I love about, and I'm really proud about our generation and the younger generation is everyone is really aligning their dollars and their buying power to, to make a better world. Be like, hey, we care about sustainability. We care about who you support. We care about supporting like, you know, um, you know diverse leadership, right? And so, you know, I, I'm operating in a different audience and different society. I think our product resonates and I think they operate really well in Asia and they're crushing it in Asia, right? And if they ever wanted to come here, um, you know, I think it, they could do it, everyone could, but it's just a different approach and a different like connection to the audience. Yeah, but here's the irony and it's not lost to me. Here's the irony, right? You have an English word Highlands and you're trying, if you're like, you're not in the US market, but you have wind. Penetrating <laughs> the U.S. market. Imagine, let's let's create a and use an English word and let's you know let's try to do something in America and that's not like penetrating. But then let's okay, well let's bring wind from Vietnam. Let's or in the United States, let's put that on the map. Ironic and amazing. Well, it's all like it's all it's all context, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not like culture is all constructed and it's all contextual right mm -hmm. um that's a great point i'm gonna try to angle with a bit more light yeah. sorry sorry to think about the sun coming down ken I, I it was bright when we started this happens a lot believe it or not yeah okay great no 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 yeah it's it's ironic um that you know a young person is bringing the the, the biggest name in <laughs> vietnam to the 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 world the the united states and um I, I actually I love it. I love the uh, the idea of it. Um, now I'm not. I, I drink coffee a lot. I drink every day, but I don't know much about it. I really don't. I just like drink. And forever I've been drinking, um, random randomly. But when I do drink, I, it's just about a year ago that I switched to just cold brew. Uh, can we talk about that? Because I do. You know, this show is about me. It's about me getting educated on anything that I you know that comes in my mind. Dumb yeah. questions, smart questions. I just have a lot of questions. And I've always wanted to, to know sort of like the distinctions between like the technical side of like, why am I having these intestinal problems? My brother has it. I have it. Mm -hmm. When we drink Vietnamese coffee in Vietnam, mm -hmm. we drink espressos here. Mm -hmm. When I switch to cold brew, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, before I get into that question, I also just want to kind of resonate with how you being a coffee drinker i i feel like i relate to you like that before i started when coffee supply when coffee supply i was just like you i was someone who drank coffee every day like one to three times a day but i really didn't know shit about coffee yeah. right i wasn't a coffee connoisseur i didn't know the ratios between a latte 
macchiato, cappuccino. Uh, I drink instant coffee, right? And I feel like most people are like us, right? Um, however, what I had, what I was noticing was that like this specialty third wave culture was making coffee very elitist and like hierarchical, and it kind of like, you know created this this culture of coffee shaming like oh you're a bad coffee drinker you're a good coffee drinker because you know how to use a scale and I hated that so much about the direction that coffee as a culture was evolving I was like when do we get so fucking snobby right it's coffee and how do we have of course Americans would find a way to infuse elitism and classism into coffee experience right um I hated that so much so I'm all about debunking that you know with Wind Pops we're all about debunking that elitist coffee culture it's like it's all good. Do you? It's all about personalization, not mastery, right? Um, but to your question, I gotta admit about the cold brew. I'm not a total coffee scientist. I could explain it very well, but I will say it's about the way that cold brew is extracted in a slower method, right? Because it's like extract. It's the extraction is it's um, it's colder water, right? And it's also fully immersed, and it takes you know between twelve to eighteen hours. And because it's like a slower extraction, it basically is less acidic. So not a scientist, but it has something to do with the slower extraction period, which affects the acidity level. Right. Right. With, for example, on the flip, espresso, super fast extraction, right? High acidity. But you have um, what's called cafe fin, right? Is that can can we get into that and the... yeah? What's your question about caffeine? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have this little contraption, right? Caffeine. Yeah. It, it seems to be um, it seems to be a very relevant. Uh, I, it's I, kind of iconic to me in our um, in our culture. Yeah. Can, do you know the history behind it? Do you know sort of like um, where it comes from and why we still do it that way and I mean, the entire country does it that way, right? You yeah, know. that's such a great question. So, um, you know, I've asked my family about this question of the history of the fiend. And I, I, to be honest, I haven't found much documentation around it. But this is my understanding of it. One, the fiend in the fiend filter is heavily influenced by the French because the French introduced coffee to Vietnam, right? Through colonization. And, you know, the French has the French press, right? And I think a lot of, you know, coffee culture in Vietnam is due to its economics and it's in how it develops. So one, um, instead of using glass in the French, in the French press, um, Vietnamese use stainless steel or aluminum because it's a more accessible product. It's cheaper, more affordable. Um, it's very easy to make, right? Uh, it doesn't require electricity. It doesn't require, you know, uh, some of the tech advancements of other countries. So I think that's how um, the fiend filter became really popular. Um, and also the way even just expanding on the culture of like cafe fiend or cafe su, cafe sura. You know, swing, people ask all the time, why swing condensed milk? Because Vietnam didn't have refrigeration for so long, right? We don't, there's no milk and sugar, right? Or cream and sugar. So it's sweet condensed milk. So I think tying it, you know, my understanding assumption is just like a lot of like the economic development of Vietnam as a country. Um, but yeah, so that's that's how I think about the Fiend Filter. It's an iteration of the French press. And it was also something that was very accessible um, and affordable and easy to make um, for Vietnam as a country. And you sell, do you sell that at all or? 
Yes, we, we sell a pink filter. So when I, when we launched Moon Coffee Supply, it was very, very important to me that we celebrate and uplift the fiend filter. Because again, we are all about diversity, right? Um, diversity in people, diversity in coffee origins, diversity in the variety, whether it's Robusta or Arabica, and also diversity in culture, right? Because what I was noticing, what I felt like as a consumer was that a lot of like, especially coffee as an industry, you know, is very obsessed about the bean. It's very bean centric, like the mm -hmm. variety, um, the climate, the elevation, the origin, the processing, right? Wash, natural, semi-wash, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like there's no conversation about the people, the culture that was surrounding these beans, right? Like, like for me, it's like, it's, it was like, it felt like a, a pure, like literal extraction of the product wow. without even talking about the people who are literally growing the product, right? Wow. I mean, you'll see like the image on a brochure once in a while, right? An image on the website, right? But the conversation as a culture didn't go deeper other than he is your farmer who picked your cherries, right? Um, it felt like a very superficial um, <laughs> approach to sustainability and transparency and diversity. So for me, it's like, I want to move past the bean, right? I consider us as leaders of the fourth wave, which is people-centered, right? Because it's, it's building upon the bean. Hey, Vietnamese coffee beans. And it's like, let's talk about the people and the culture who produce Vietnamese coffee beans. Hence the fiend filter, right? When you look at brew guides on all these different coffee companies, oh, you look at brew guides, right? You see the Chemex, the V60. Oh, here comes here comes my my boyfriend with the light the lighting kit. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> light super cool. I'm sorry, I should have done it sooner. Um, you know, the brew guides in like American coffee cultures, like the French press, the Chemex, the V60. Um, even the even like the Mocha pot. Why not the Fiend filter, right? It's, it's simply because um, why not? Because no one's ever just tried to include it before, right? And this is where, when I think about representation, whether it's in film, media, or coffee, we can't expect other people to do it, right? Unless they're gonna Columbus it, right? So it's upon us to, and I think it's better when it comes from our community because we get to do with the level of integrity and authenticity to share and educate. And so, yes, we have the Fiend Filter and it's a really, really big, big, um, you know, part of our company because we want it, we're very intent on spreading the culture as well as the coffee bean. Arabica and robust. I keep hearing those two words. Um, what, what is it? What does it mean? Yeah. Arabica and Robusta are the two main varieties of coffee in the coffee world, right? And then under that, you have other like species and varieties. Um, but they're the main two, and I would kind of consider them like as cousins, right? And um, they're, they're both very different. Robusta beans have two times more caffeine content than Arabica. It also has up to two times more antioxidants than Arabica. And it also has 60% less fats and 60% less sugars than Arabica. And because of that, you get its robust name, right? Because it because of these properties, it's going to be a much more bold, strong, dark, chocolatey, nutty profile, right? With Arabica, because it has more, more sugars, more fats, you know, natural sugars and fats, um, that's where we get a lot of the fruity, the sweet, the floral notes, right? Depending on where it's come, where it's coming from, right? And then of course, other factors like elevation, climate, how it's grown can bring out different notes, right? But those are the two main distinctions. Um, the other thing I want to point out about robusta beans is because it's um, robusta beans are also um, very easier, very e they're much easier to grow. 
um, than Arabica beans, hence the name robust. They grow in robust amounts. Um, they can endure um, lots of different climates um, and they're considered to be the future. Well, I believe they're the future of coffee because they're gonna be a more sustainable coffee option in the future because they can be grown in almost any type of climate. Reminds me of uh, two other terms in another uh, industry, Indica and Sativa. Ah! Yes. <laughs> Keep thinking about that uh, as you're explaining it. But um, w in Vietnam, are we, you said we're using more ro robust. Uh, Vietnam, Vietnam is the number two producer of coffee in the world, and it is the number one producer of robusta beans in the world. Okay. And then so, yes, so to your question, Vietnamese coffee and culture is heavily centered around robusta coffee. Got it. Now, where do you think we got the robusta? Is it uh, something that somebody brought over at one point? Mm. Is it native to Vietnam? Mm. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't mean to put you That's on the a spot question. as a historian, but I should know that, and I don't. But let me Google it afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> we're talking about um, colonial uh, colonialism, it, it it seeps into our conversation, and yeah. there are many good things that came about. From colonialism and then there's really a, there's a lot of horrible like dark things that and you know we have to sift through this it's very messy sometimes right and yeah i'm in the business of getting down to like to the details right to like yeah. okay, let's get it all out on the table yeah. <laughs> right of columbus i'm like do we <laughs> yeah we'll break that down break that idea down because i think um some people might not kind of put one on like one one together and i want to hear where you're coming from when you throw in that columbus term um what is your question one more time um so you threw in the word columbus it you you use it as a verb right <laughs> yeah yeah so i, I kind of want to hear you kind of explain that what what that means um, yeah when i was when i was referring to columbusing earlier it, for me columbusing ref is referring to when um mostly when when people who are not from a certain culture, in this case, say Vietnamese culture, right? So, and usually it's white people, right? When they discover something already existing for many, many, many generations, they discover something about a culture, be it, you know, Vietnamese culture, be it matcha, be it, you know, um, you know, wonton or soup dumplings, they discover it. And I say in quotes because it's been around and then they okay. try to repackage it and then like present it as something new. That they yeah, new, like this new discovery. But really the problem is when they do it without cultural integrity, right? And how do you have cultural integrity in your product? Well, be well versed well, in the history, be well versed in the culture and the people who produced it and honor and acknowledge and pay homage to that culture because that journey is a part of your journey as someone who's trying to profit off of it, right? Um, so that's what I mean when I say Columbusing. It's, it's different from colonization where it's like yeah. literally someone going into a country, right? Columbusing happens, um, Columbusing is a behavior that that is really rooted in a lot of ignorance and lack of care and integrity for the culture and the people who produce the product um, or, or, or the experience that they are trying to profit off. You know, so you, all, and I, wanna, I just want to clarify that I'm not saying that non-Vietnamese people cannot start, it. you know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm saying. It's about culture integrity. And it's about awareness. So, you know, if you're not Vietnamese or you're not part of the culture, then kind of homage, it's uh, being aware of like where the people on the ground are, you know, are at. 
Right. You brought in a few other things and God, I have like a million questions. I should have a night notepad sometimes. Third culture, fourth culture. Yeah. Third wave, third wave. Third wave. Okay, mm-hmm. third wave, fourth wave. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So third wave, so it's let me go backtrack. So it's like the first wave of coffee is often described as like the Maxwell the Folgers, right? Mm-hmm. Um just coffee on the supermarket shelf zero transparency, zero, um, I, you know, no idea as to where the coffee's from, when it was roasted, how it was roasted, who was, it just says coffee, right? Yeah. Um, then the second wave is like often described as like, like Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, yeah. right? Um, serving coffee, right? Um, Starbucks kind of elevates it a little bit with like the Italian espresso. Starbucks was the first company really to introduce Italian coffee to the US, right? Because before Starbucks entered, it was just Dunkin' Donuts. It was primarily drip coffee. And then Starbucks came in with like the espresso and the whole espresso menu. Third wave is is often defined as specialty coffee, um, which comes with a wave of like, um, of which comes with like, the values of transparency um, and sustainability, right? And visibility. And that's kind of defined by the players of like Blue Bottle or Stumptown. Mm-hmm. And they started really expanding on coffee, not just from like coffee from Dunkin' Donuts and coffee at Starbucks, but like, this is a bean from this country, from this farm, from this farmer, and it's this variety and it was grown in this way and it was processed in this way and it was roasted in this way, right? It was, it was really about the idea of transparency from like crop to cup. Right. Wow. Um, so that's and because of the third word, third wave. Right. That's where we get a lot of like the excitement, the exploration around the bean and the science of the bean. And then, you know, aside from how it was grown and where it was grown, and how it's processed, we get into the science of how to extract it. Right. We get into scales and grams and water temps and volume yield. And, you know, it's very, very specific to the science of the coffee. Right. Down to extraction and details, uh, which then which in my which in my theory assumption leads to this idea of mastery right and with mastery comes elitism right all of a sudden if you're not making your coffee with a scale and in a in a water you know in a kettle that has a water temp then you're drinking it wrong right and all of a sudden people who are drinking bodega coffee or dunkin donuts or starbucks are like shitted on right um yeah so that's their way so fourth wave is kind of like in the making right it's not quite called yet but like we're calling because because we believe that the fourth wave is about people and culture right building upon the third wave which is so much about the bean fantastic uh explanation i <laughs> i didn't know that it's uh <laughs> it's mind-blowing because there's you know there's uh what what comes to mind for me uh is new belgium brewery that's mm. a beer label that uh, one of my friends worked at from the early days. And he's like now in charge of, uh, he's probably like third up on that uh, ladder uh, from the uh, CEO down. And it's, it's, you know, it, they brought in this sort of art, uh, this craft uh, beer um, in the early days. And it sounds like the third wave of, of what you just described um, yeah. without getting into proprietary uh, sort of processes, mm-hmm. you kind of like walk, me through sort of like from crop to cup if, if yeah. You can. yeah yeah you can sure any, your secrets but just yeah. want to hear what the process is yes yes okay so um our farmer um is certified organic in vietnam right he has awards recognition um from the government of vietnam he's not usda certified organic and the, the whole question of like certifications in the specialty coffee 
industry is often a conversation amongst folks in the industry where a lot of us agree, at least the ones I've talked to, we don't really care about those certifications because one, they're expensive. Two, we, and myself included, care a lot more about value in the relationship, right? Um, and just have working together. So so through my relationship with my current producing partner, I know that like he's, we're both very dedicated to organic practices. And what that means is using all natural biofertilizers, right? Um, and then, so that's the, that's like the farming part. When it comes to the harvest season, um, it's hand picking the cherries, right? That you only pick the red ones or the ripe ones, right? Which takes more time. And that's why it's more of a premium specialty product. In some places, you know, people can use um, tree shakers to shake all the coffee beans out, or they'll just kind of grab all the beans out at once, right? When it comes to picking only the red and ripe cherries, the farmers have to go back every day, right, throughout several months and wait for the cherries to ripen as they're only picking the red and they have to come back the next day, right? So it takes more time, and that's why um, it's more of a premium product. Once it's picked, once the cherries are picked, so the coffee is called, they're called cherries and the coffee bean itself is actually the seed, right? So once the cherry is picked, there are different ways to process it, right? Um, a natural process means that it's like sun-dried. A full wash process means it's a wet process because it's washed in water. Um, a honey process is like it's um, sun-dried with the cherry shell on, so the sugars from the, the cherry shell um, kind of go into the bean, right? So depending on different farmers and different beans and different, you know, preferences and methods, it gets processed in one way, right? So our robusta beans are a natural process and our arabica beans are a um, full wash process, right? Once it goes through the, pro the, proce the process, it then gets like deshelled, right? So it goes through the machine and it just gets deshelled. So all the, all the red stuff comes out. And then it goes into this big water pit where, cause after it gets deshelled, it is like all this sticky stuff around the, the bean, which is the yeah. sugar, right? So then it soaks in water for about eight, I think eight hours, right? Um, and then they basically remove all of like the sticky sugar so that it doesn't create mold or mildew over time. And then it goes into a dryer, um, I forget how many hours, but it's it's quite a while. It goes into a dry to dry completely because you don't want any moisture, which or sh that would then lead to mold. And then it goes into once it's dried, it goes into um, goes to another machine that basically takes off um, the parchment, the parchment layer, right. right? Takes off the parchment layer, and then you end up with the final product called the green bean. And the green bean is the form before it gets roasted. So after it goes through that, it gets bagged up. It gets, you know, it's now we have the green bean and it gets bagged up. Bags are like 60 kilograms, 132 pounds. And then it gets shipped over to us on a boat. It arrives to us and then it arrives at our facility. Then where we roast. Got it. Now, what happens to all that flesh that falls off? Is that, is it used for anything? That's a good question. It's not used for anything. Some places will use it in, um, other products, like if they're trying to be like sustainable, but to my knowledge with our current producer, I don't think there's a use for it, but I'll double check. That's a good question. Um, and the difference between a red a cherry and a green cherry, you're saying that it affects the seed on that level? Yes, because it's um, the amount of sugars that are being developed 
and that eventually kind of like surround and surround and like kind of go into the bean or which or the seed. Now, when you say premium and when you say I'll shake the tree so everything comes down, there's a big difference, right? <laughs> that margin is massive. Yeah. Uh, can you taste it? Can we taste it if there's like a blind test, you think? Uh, it's a good question. Um, so the thing about when it's unripe, right? You could think of like an unripe apple versus a ripe apple. An unripe apple is going to be sour, right? Yeah. And underdeveloped, right? So if the cherry itself is underdeveloped, um, one, the sugars are not all developed. Also, the bean itself is like underdeveloped, right? Um, and so, but to your question of like, can you taste it in a blind test? That's a good question. We should try. <laughs> or is there metrics around the acidity level or the sugar levels? You know, are there yeah. ways to test it? You know, it's interesting. Yeah. Let me think about that. There are ways to test it. There definitely are ways to test it. Um, yeah. I We haven't actually, you know, we don't have a, a mixed batch. So, um, but there are ways to test it. There are ways to test the final product itself um, through cupping, what we call cupping, which is you roast it, it, you roast a sample and then you cup it, which is like, you're basically tasting the coffee to kind of see what the acidity level is, see what the sugar levels are, see what the profiles are, to kind of see the characteristics of the coffee yeah. itself. Mm -hmm. When you are starting this, um, there, it's impossible to have a smooth journey. Right. It's, it's not like you go and you're like, oh, yeah, auntie, thank you. I, I got it from here. <laughs> what kind of bullshit did you go through um, as you're, you know, growing in the early years? Yeah. Well, we're still in the early years. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of bullshit? Um, you know, I will say. I will say that. It definitely, it wasn't smooth, um, but I will say that I, I feel fortunate that we didn't have too many major fuck-ups that would just derail us. For me, it was more of like the learning curve I had to go through to figure it out, yeah. right? So it was it was less of like less fuck-ups, but more of like the frustration and the hurdles of like, fuck, how do I do this? Like, who do I need to talk to? Who do yeah. I... What is the next step? Like that was the biggest hurdle, but it, nothing really horribly went wrong. Um, it's more of us like actually, well, like one time something did go wrong. It wasn't horrible. But it's an, an example would be like I'm importing our, our coffee over, and 24 hours before it arrives, I'm supposed to send my customs broker a piece of paper, and they need like the original copy from Vietnam, but there was a miscommunication, and so like I didn't have the original copy, but you need the original copy to clear it, like that type of shit. Um, like that happened once. That's probably like the biggest freak out for me. Um, but that becomes a small thing, right? Because you just call your broker in Vietnam, and they send the original bill of lading, and you know. yeah, the bill. Yeah, you know the bill. Yeah, the bill. Um, but actually, we that we wasn't enough time to ship, mm -hmm. so they had to quickly change it to a telex release, and then and then I got it. But stuff like that, where I'm like, nobody told me, or like, or like, or like my freight forwarder didn't tell me soon enough. You know. Yeah. yeah, those are minor issues, but I'm wondering if there's like <laughs> big issue. I mean, how could you have gone unscathed? Like, <laughs> it, it's crazy. Like, I follow my I follow my feelings. That's crazy. Um, like, you think that's not an issue? Shit. That's some small shit. I want to hear like what, like, you know, shit came and it's like moldy, you know, like. Oh, no, 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 no. no. That, that BOL issue was one of my, what I feel like is one of the bigger issues I, I dealt with. I was like so stressed the fuck out. But yeah, give me some examples of bigger issues oh because. <laughs> I've done this for 
<laughs> eight, 15 years of my life. And the early years I got ripped off. I got like, oh yeah, no. I got like, we got, you know, our factory taken from us at one point and I warned my dad and I'm like, yo, we yeah. went through some bullshit in the first, you know, 10 years Ooh. of my factory. Yeah, no, we've been in that case. We've been very, very fortunate. Yeah. Very fortunate. Um, yeah, no, nothing bad like that. Honestly, Ken, like, I, I feel like it's, I don't want to say it's been smooth sailing because it has, it's been hard, but yeah, the biggest hurdles were just my lack of knowledge that I had to yeah. figure out. But on the other end of things with people, like I haven't gotten screwed over, you know, in this business. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe that came in my uh, previous experience. Maybe like that one is like checked off in my karma yeah. list, whatever. Yeah. Um, but my partnerships are amazing. You know, my partnership with a current producing partner, like we're like an M, you know, like we're like mm. brother, sister, like, and you know, we're like family, you know, we feel like family, we treat each other like family, we look out for each other. And also it was his first time exporting to the US, right? So for us, it was very much of like a learning collaborative process. Like I would learn something about something I would teach him, you know, or like, you know, so it was like, it's, it's been a great partnership. And with any of my other producers, yeah, and it hasn't, haven't been screwed over. Um, um, my customs broker is actually my friend's mom, you know? know. Um, <laughs> um, our theme our producers, they're all, we're all like family, you know? Like, like that's my G, you know? Um, mm. Yeah, no, it's been, we haven't had any bad experiences. Amazing, amazing to hear. And I'm, I am so grateful and, and happy to hear that, you know, yeah. because uh, people lost their fortunes in the early years of uh, doing business in Vietnam in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Mm. People were losing fortunes. I, so you said late 90s, right? Because Vietnam didn't join the WTO until I think 2007 or 2009, right? It was like around that time. So yeah, I think before that period, it was a very different time. But I think after they joined the WTO and they needed like, you know, they wanted to become economic power and they need to build a reputation. And they were also much more, because there was a point in time where like, Vietnam didn't even want VQs coming in, right? When my when I would try my parents, we would always get flagged because the government would be like, you fled the country, you're a traitor, right? Or like, you're the daughter of someone who's a traitor, right? It was very, like, a lot of animosity, but then it, everything changed after WTO. And now Vietnam is like, we love VQ, we want outside money, we want investments, you know, we want you to help build our economy. Um, yeah, it's, it's much different. I think it's much different now. Yeah. Not that you shouldn't be, I think, and I think anyone who's listening, like, I think you should always be careful. Um, but I think, yeah, the timing, you said those years and I was like, oh, that was pre WTO. Yeah, it was, uh, we tried a few things and, you know, we, our family landed on one thing and, you know, it, there was a lot of struggle in the beginning. Mm. Um, so enough about my family. What, <laughs> um, where is coffee grown in Vietnam other than you said a lot, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it sounds like it's grown in higher elevations. Like, can you tell me about that? So in the U.S., the U.S. really only knows about the lot, right? But in Vietnam, it's Bumutut that is known as like the coffee region, right? Um, and it's in Bumutut where they have like the coffee museum, right? Oh, wow. um, yeah. So everyone, everywhere, and everyone I talk to in Vietnam, like they don't, they they know it a lot, but they really think of Bumathut. And um, I think a big part of it is, I think in Bumathut, it's primarily robusta, and in, in the lot is where a lot of the arabica is grown because of the elevation. Yeah. But you're dealing with more with Bumathut or um. I'm in the lot. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And is um. 
you know, is there a lot of room for, for you to kind of like uh, grow? I mean, or get yeah. stuff from? Yeah, I would say there is a lot of room for us to grow, right? Um, there's a lot of room because the way we, that I imagine us growing, um, Ken, is not just finding new land, right? Because land is finite. It's about building this movement for specialty Vietnamese coffee that helps create economic um, advancements and opportunities for Vietnamese people. And the way we do that is we build the awareness and the demand in outside of Vietnam, in the US, for premium specialty Vietnamese coffee beans. The more this demand goes, grows, the more I can actually work with more producers in Vietnam to say, hey, mm -hmm. let's convert your current land from commercial to specialty production by doing X, Y, and Z. Don't shake the tree. Don't use this bad fertilizer and use all natural biofertilizers. Wait for it to get ripe, handpick the ripe cherries, and then you produce a premium product, right? And that's really the long-term vision with me and my current producing partner is to create more opportunities for people to exit commercial coffee production to go to premium because what's happened for so long in Vietnam, right? The reason why people say, oh, Vietnam is cheap, Vietnam is instant coffee. Where did this come from? It, it's a system that's been created by so many corporations for so long, right? And Vietnamese farmers, if they don't have, they don't have an opportunity to get out of that commercial cycle because there's no buyer for Vietnamese coffee, right? Because the rest of the world doesn't look at Vietnam as a producer of specialty Vietnamese coffee. So what Vietnamese farmers are doing is they do what they know will sell at the end of the day. They have a buyer for instant coffee, right? It's a huge investment in time and money and labor to convert to premium. And no one is going to do that if they don't have a buyer at the end of the day, right? So we can de-risk them when I can grow the volume and I'll say, hey, if you make this season's harvest premium by doing X, Y, and Z, I can guarantee you half your crop or your whole crop that I'm going to buy it, right? So it de-risks them and it also creates better opportunities. So yeah. there's a lot of room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like a force of nature. You're like, <laughs> and I, it doesn't sound like you ever, I mean, from the way you've talked about your education or your, your gut, uh, everything you're doing is feeling it, like, it doesn't sound like you've ever like gone to a, you know, business. Did you go to school for business? I mean, how did you understand these principles, these nuances in business? I never went to school for business. I double majored in Asian American studies and creative writing. <laughs> Um, from my parents, I mean, my parents never taught me, but I think I learned the feeling, the knack from watching them. Um, and as I get older, I'm like, my parents are really smart. I should ask them for like financial training, you know, uh, how do they do it? Right. But they're so hands off. They're so chill with me. Um, I, how did I learn by now that I think just by doing it, you know, and you know, the, when I first started, again, like I told you earlier, when I first started when gospel, I didn't know shit about coffee. I, I drink instant coffee like yep. once a week, you know? And once you get into it, I just took that first step. I inched a little bit closer. If I didn't know something, I would ask someone. And, and I'm still doing that. I'm, I, I know so much more now than I did two years ago. I know so much more now than I did a month ago. And there's so much today that I don't fucking know. And I'm like, holy shit, I need to figure this out. This one problem out, this one problem. I'm like, who can I talk to? Who can I call, right? And I just lean on the people around me, whether it's my network, whether it's my brother-in-law, my sister, or, you know, my advisors, you know, or my other founder friends right i just like have an e a hunger for learning and for knowing so yeah and, I, and so i hope that people anyone's listening 
can understand that you don't have to know it all and you'll never know the whole plan. It's, it's, it's just about taking one step um, at a time and just like putting one foot in front of the other and then and just inching to- closer towards your goal. You know, a lot of people um, have this idea that Vietnam is a patriarchal society and it probably is, but I come from a background where my mother was the matriarch in the business uh, that we ran. She made the decisions, she kept the train steady and, and pushing forward. So it's no surprise and it's not foreign that when I sit with a woman, a Vietnamese woman and talk about business, it's very, I was like, of course, you know, Vietnamese women are, are, are amazing and brilliant at business. But is that your experience sort of being treated like that as a businesswoman in Vietnam when you go to Vietnam to do business? Mm, great question. Um, do I feel... Yeah, I, I would say out of all my experiences in Vietnam, um, going into meetings with new people, with you know new potential partners or new anything, I've always been treated with respect. Yeah, I do feel that way. And I don't know if a part of it is because I'm American, you know, I don't know if it's because they can look me up, look at my website, you know, um, or if they can look up my press. Um, or because that's just the culture, you know, and women in Vietnam are all like entrepreneurs and they control Boss. the money, right? Mm-hmm. Bosses. Um, yeah, I, I would say, I would say, if anything, a little bit more positive than like in the U.S. Whoa, that's a big <laughs> statement. It's a cool statement. <laughs> it's a what? It's a cool statement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I never thought culture. about it. Culture is different, you know? Yeah, but women are, are given a lot of um, power in the business world, I feel. Yeah. Well, I feel like, like even a simple, like in a simple sense, like I feel like it's common to see like women, they always control the wallet. Like everywhere we go, like they pay, you know, they pay for things, they handle things. Like women are like they control the wallet. It's just like a thing that I see all the time. Yeah, it's uh, it's very apparent. Like in my family, it was like my dad had my mother control the wallet, and in my my brother's been doing business in Vietnam for sixteen years. He's married to a, a Vietnamese uh, woman, um, she basically handles all the finance. Mm-hmm. They're damn good at it too. And her mother handles it and you know, mm-hmm. my brother's-in-law. Amazing. <laughs> the, the branding, how did you come up with the name? Yeah. Um, oh, it's a name story. I love the story. Okay, so this is the name story. When I was first starting, this was 2017, I was thinking about the name. And it came down to two names side by side. It was one, Tiger Coffee, a Vietnamese coffee brand, or two, Nguyen Coffee Supply, right? And I was like, which one? And and Ken, I honestly, I was having conversations with myself. I was like, is America ready for Nguyen Coffee Supply, right? Yeah. Tiger Coffee, it's more palatable. It's accessible. There's Tiger Beer. And I'm here, the tiger. And Vietnamese coffee is strong. It's bold. Like, maybe I should do Tiger Coffee, right? Because I was really underestimating our audience, right? And I was like, I just don't know if America's ready for Nguyen, right? And, you know, long story short, I... Well, I guess I'll, I don't want to skip this part. I tell this part all the time, but I'll try to keep it short. Long story short, I was at my... <laughs> I want to hear every... Okay, great. So it was, you know, September 2017. I was having this dilemma. Um, my sister got married and she changed her last name, right? And I talked, I remember talking to my dad. Oh, how do you feel that my sister changed her last name? And he was like, 
I feel a little sad because I realize that my last name will end because he has three daughters, right? Because we we're three girls. He's like, my last name will end. Oh, and I was like, oh, I was like, oh my God, fuck patriarchy. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, yo, fuck that. I'm gonna make Nguyen the most famous last name in the world. So that was like, I'm named the coffee company Nguyen Coffee Supply. And I was like, I don't even, I don't know. I don't care if America's not ready. I'm gonna help make them ready. I'm gonna help make us all more comfortable with this name, right? And so that's how I named the company Nguyen Coffee Supply. And then as it leads to the branding, you know, so much of my work from my activism to media, it's all about representation, right? So I'm like, you're gonna see us, right? So you're gonna see me and we're gonna have a conversation about what is this name? How do you say it? What are diacritics? Vietnam's a tonal language? Tell me about the tones, right? It's a conversation started in so many ways and in a very superficial way, it's like peer representation and visibility, right? For Vietnamese culture. Um, and of course, for like my, my family legacy. And can I cannot tell you how many times so many Vietnamese people and Asian Americans have messaged me over DM or email and they say three fucking words, I feel seen from a fucking bag of coffee. That's how deprived we've been from, from, from representation of reflections where you feel seen and you feel something from a bag of coffee. Oh, so I'm so glad that I went with that name. And, and I'll say, I really underestimated America and our audience. Everyone's still down for it. Even not even these people, they're like, oh, I love this name. It makes so much sense. It screams Vietnamese coffee. I'm like, yay. <laughs> I wanna cry. <laughs> I know. I still get chills when I talk about it. It's Ken. It's so fucking powerful. It's you have no so idea deep. how. I mean, you do have an idea, but the shit is really deep. Like this being seen and having visibility, having representation on this superficial of a service level, it means so much to to us and to me because we haven't had an ounce of it or anything like it before. You know. Um, so yeah, I I love the brand name. I love what it's doing. It's it's making us all engage with Nguyen and the whole story behind it, you know? I love that. Love it so much. Um, I was just on another episode uh, before this uh, with four Marines, and um, we were talking about how we all met each other and the name tags uh, that you wear in boot camp and throughout the your Marine Corps, you know, time, you, you have these individual, and it says Nguyen on it, right? And this is 93. The drill instructors would call me and they would purposely fuck the name up. Nugu Guy Pan, get your fucking ass over here. Nugu Guy Pan, like, and I understand, like, some level of humiliation is necessary to kind of like separate the ego <laughs> from the recruit, you know? But mm -hmm. that shit left marks on my psyche. I, I tell you, it, 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 it made me very embarrassed to have that last name for at least a decade. You know, mm -hmm. Four years in the Marine Corps was like embarrassing, but then obviously the gift of, of meeting other wins in the, the military, and we talk about that, um, was a gift and a, a wonderful sensation. But that, now, this is a, another level of you know, it's the coffee from Vietnam, and we're bringing the whole name element to it, the awareness of it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah, I. I, I, I'm speechless because I would have never in a million gazillion years uh, expected to have um, our name venerated like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you I'm, know, yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, your friend's Marine story, like, that resonates with me, you know? Like, before I became politi- politically active and... Politi- well, that was me. As oh, Marine. that was you? Yeah, that was me. I went oh through that. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, I went through that. So I'm hearing your story right now, and I'm like, you know, I'm if that was me. My The drill instructors oh, called me Google Guy Pan and all sorts of varieties, you know, in the four oh, years gosh. that we were in. Yeah, yeah, it was me. Yeah, it was crazy shit. Oh, Cam, I'm so sorry. I go through that. No, this is this is uh, amazing that we. But I, it resonates with me because you know, before, as a kid, grew up in Boston. Yeah. Like, I I was so fucking embarrassed in my last name. Yeah. You know, I grew up. I went through the whole public ed school, K through twelve in Boston. Like, no one knew. We were again. There was no Asian. There was just Chinese, right? It was just Ching Chong, right? Sl- slanted eyes. Like that shit was so normal back then, right? In the '90s, right? And. I just like cringed in class. I cringed when my teacher would have to try to say my name on the first day at roll call. All the kids who just like, what the, what, how do you say this? Like, yes, it was a source of just shame and embarrassment for me too for so many years. And it just made me want to hide, you know? Um, but now it's a whole new story. <laughs> it is. It's a beautiful, uh, I mean, it's the, the the origin story of our entire sort of like journey from from Vietnam and and to the U.S. and now we're having businesses and you know we're growing brands that are named after our family. Right. Yeah, I know. it's so cool. Our generation's so our generation's so cool. I'm really proud of everyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm um going back to that what I said in the beginning where you know you 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 talk to somebody and you're like okay well they do this uh, win coffee supply right you're like okay well there's this bracket, but then you get into the historical aspect of this person's development right. So somewhere along the line, somebody took you to uh, some high school thing and you were brought into this world of a awakening mm-hmm. and then you you continue that all the way into your current brand mm-hmm. and it's like this vehicle to propagate like bring out this sort of awareness through through commerce yeah it's cool <laughs> yeah and do you ever have any plans to go back into media or are you doing media on the side now i mean entrepreneurs like us are very uh it's hard to keep us focused on, on one thing so what's your what's your gig yeah. now like it's all uh, coffee or do you kind of like itch to go out to the other side yeah you know it's it's definitely all coffee because there's i feel so excited by every day like there's just so much to do Ken there's so much to capture there's so much to tell um you know there's so many there's just so much like excitement ahead of us with the company um and sharing our love for Vietnamese coffee and sharing our love for the fiend filter and sharing our story um there's so much so I I'm I'm I'm, I never have an itch to do anything else I just have an itch to do more with the with the coffee company um Cause there's a lot of growth ahead, you know? Um, and so I want to be able to do it all in terms of media though, media though. Um, I definitely see a lot of media in our future. You know, I feel like I do, I get to, like we were saying earlier, I get to channel a lot of the media storytelling through when coffee supply. Um, but definitely in the future I see, you know, I would say when the company is a little bit more stable or a lot more stable, um, I see lots of media projects in the future for us, whether it's, um, you know, books or films, you know, talking about um, our journey um, and just kind of expanding more on the Vietnamese experience. Um, definitely plan on revisiting media more in the future. 
at some point we're going to have saturation with the way we are being represented a good saturation where you know the entire world is like all right when coffee supply all right when vietnamese food there's gonna be a point of saturation or do you think that we're very very far from that Hmm. how would you define saturation though where we go out and we are part of the you know the world is one the world is uh recognizing everybody who's vietnamese you know the way probably the way we were looking at white people when we were younger mm-hmm. are we very far w- from that hmm. that's a good question um it's a really great question what i'm feeling and how i want to answer this is um i feel like the internet definitely helps to expedite this this path towards saturation and I think that this point of saturation for our stories, a lot of it is going to have to do with how people, not even these people receive us and or are willing to understand us, right? Because we can sit here and scream our stories all day and publish content all day, but is anyone listening? Is anyone taking the time to understand our stories, right? So I think it's like there are a couple of things that work hand in hand with that point of saturation, right? Like, for example, when I was an undergrad at UCLA, one of the biggest campaigns we worked on was called the Count Me In campaign, which was a campaign to disaggregate student admissions data for the Asian American population so that we could see the different um, communities, specifically Southeast Asian, right, um, um, Pacific Islanders to better advocate for admissions later on, right, or resources. I remember working on that since 2007, and I graduated in 2009. In 2017, I see a post on Facebook saying, the UCs vote to disaggregate Asian Americans' admissions data. And I'm like, holy shit, it happened. But then I'm like, holy shit, that took 10 years, right? When I don't think disaggregation of data is a hard thing to understand, right? So yeah, so I don't know how to answer that question. I, I do feel like the internet is a great tool for us to expedite a lot of these, um, these, um, these stories in terms of formation and creation. Um, but then a lot of it is, are people willing, right, to receive and understand us and see us as like full humans? You go and spend uh, time in Vietnam uh, quite a bit as you're going through this journey. Do you ever see that um, they have a completely different sort of perspective on identity? <laughs> yes, I do. Does it trip you out? Mm. and okay let me ask you a, a, a different question uh, a de- like uh, go into that um they do if you're saying they do what do you think their perspective is on their identity looking outwards or inwards what's your kind of like your gauge on how they see themselves like yeah i think you know because the u.s is a very you know, interracial and intercultural society, identity is like constructed in a different way here than in Vietnam. It's primarily Vietnamese. So they don't, they, they probably, you know, they deal with colorism, but they don't deal with racism, right? The way we deal with it. Yeah. So when I say, yes, I do, what I see in Vietnam is they have such a strong sense of pride in their yes. identity. Yeah. and their culture and their families and their traditions and 
you know, who they are. And then you throw in the internet in the digital age and you get like this amazing flair of like exploration and rebellion, creativity, innovation rooted with so much cultural pride, right? Um, and acceptance. I think there's a lot of love and acceptance in Vietnamese culture, right? I mean, I, I think in Asian cultures in general, we talk about the East being a collectivist culture, right? It's about community, about family, right? Um, so that's how I look at, you know, how I'm understanding how Vietnamese are looking at identity. It's taking me, it's going to take me a while to kind of like wrap my mind, because I think my journey of exploration with the Vietnamese is sort of like piecing together uh, our identity throughout the world, within the country. It's going to take me a while to kind of like, I think, paint the pictures and take me a couple of years. But I'm always worried, <laughs> like, what if we just arrive at like content? We're just all now content. We're like... We're like just like rich, fat, nasty Vietnamese people, and you know we we rule. Uh, are we going to get to that? Do you you know, and we're going to lose meaning. Are we going to lose meaning? That's a great question, and I think that's you know the answer to that question is in the making, Ken, because it's upon us, right? Are we going to lose meaning? It's upon us and how we um, shape our identities and how we shape our culture and how we shape our community in the future generation, really. Um, it's upon um, us, it's upon folks above us and older than us, it's also upon folks who are younger than us. Um, the answer to that is in the making. So I think what's exciting is that we get to kind of dictate that. And I wanna say, I hope, no, we don't lose meaning. But then again, that's upon us to maintain our culture, right? And to uh, maintain a collective culture and to continue to look out for each other and take care of each other and uplift each other and like celebrate each other and like really hold on to our culture in, in all different ways that we can. Yeah, that's a, it's my hope too, that we bond together and we can sort of come together and put aside our differences or subtle differences for a little bit so we can build the brand right <laughs> there is a vietnamese brand and it's like it's new and it's exciting and you know it's very uh, exciting it's exciting it's exciting i mean all eyes are like on vietnam right now yeah in, in, in saigon you know like it's very exciting yeah um i want to thank you for you know, spending uh, such an, a long time on and and speaking to me about everything coffee and your journey, um, is there anything else you want to add to our conversation? Um, there's nothing. People always ask for that. There's nothing I want to add to our conversation. I just want to add to you by saying thank you, Ken, for inviting me and having me here and for doing the important work of documenting the stories from our community and sharing it. And I have a feeling that we're going to be talking again in yeah, I, a year I, or two. But, but I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say on the record, that I do hope to see uh, a podcast coming from your corner. Because I think you have so much more to say as, as a, you know, a younger, um, the generation that is up and coming, or you've already arrived, and then you're going to bring the younger uh, context into uh, perspective. And we need that. We need, we need to cast a wide net to get mm -hmm. that voice amplified. And I say this to all of my wonderful uh, friends and, and guests that uh, I hope to see the next time is perhaps a conversation uh, on your podcast. I appreciate that. I'm going to work on that, Ken. Thank you so much for the push. Yeah. Awesome. Well, have a wonderful evening and uh, we will be talking soon. Thank you. Bye, Ken. <laughs>
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.